This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled A Pocket Guide for Project Managers. Maximize People, Process, and Tools. Our guest joining me from the New York City area in the United States is Michael J. Bedigo. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This book is important on several levels. Uh, First of all, I like the fact that it's a pocket guide. That must mean that a guy in management or a lady in management can grab this and put it in an inconspicuous spot and refer to it. Would that be a good description? Absolutely, and that was my intention for uh, for creating a pocket guide so that you could carry it around and no need to read it from cover to cover. You could just open it from anywhere and refer to it. So, yes. Why do you have the skill to write a book like this, Michael? This is pretty ambitious. It is, but I've, uh, I've been working on uh, Wall Street for about 20 years, uh, managing projects of all different size and scope and, and mission criticalness. And I think that I've collected a, a valuable amount of experience that have allowed me to distill it into some universal truths that everyone can benefit from to make their projects more successful. And for my listeners, just to give a little polish to the Apple, you have been involved with Citigroup and several other major uh, corporations that they would recognize. Are any of those outlined in your book, and not not by specifics, but by uh, inference? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I do mention Jamie Dimon in my book, and I, I do refer to some of the uh, the larger institutions where I've managed some of these mission-critical projects. There must be a an impetus, uh, an inspiration behind uh, writing a book. That's not every man's task. You are obviously a uh, project and multitask guy. When did you begin the idea of putting this into written, a written form? It started back when I was working at J.P. Morgan, and I was charged with managing a project management office that had about uh, 20 different project managers in there. And they had uh, an eclectic... A mix of experience and expertise. And I started out by trying to find some common themes that I could relate to them to make them all successful, given their differences. And it started out as a short list and it started to grow into a, a bigger list. And I found that there were universal truths that I could impart to my staff that would raise their effectiveness and make them all more successful. So what started out as a small list grew into a uh, into a book over the course of a couple of years. You started out hoping to get 20 in your list of um, ideas and concepts and ended up with over 300. That's amazing. Yes. And what's interesting is that the advice that I offer is not revolutionary. It's, it's nothing outside the realm of common sense. But it is things that people tend to forget or perhaps don't re- call or appreciate in their day-to-day activity as they're trying to manage a project. 
And my advice is to remember some fundamental concepts that will make you successful. And when you talk about fundamental concepts, uh, your book, your chapter titles are very basic, but many people in leadership forget the basics. You talk about the problems that cause, cause projects to fail, such as accountability, communication, transparency, governance, control, leadership and style tools. These are fairly common, at least in the parlance of leadership, but not necessarily implemented well. That is correct. And what I did find working in the, the many Wall Street firms that I, that I had the opportunity to participate in is that every project in every institution suffers from a problem in one of these areas to one degree or another. Uh, it may be a little bit more in, in this company and a little less over, over in this company, but to, to a certain degree, all projects suffer uh, challenges in these, in these fundamental areas. You have written this as a uh, as an opening uh, bit of information in many industries, including government. No matter what the economy is like, no matter how many hours are devoted, and how no matter how many how bright people how bright the people are in the team, a certain percentage of projects will fail to realize the success of on time within budget delivery. Many may terminate without reaching the original intended goal. What is it about these ventures that cause such disappointing results? And what are those first steps of failure that you have discovered that that uh, sabotage projects? The the initial seeds are are often planted uh, very early in project inception, um, and typically what I find, and and maybe some of your listeners will, this will sound familiar to them, where as a project manager you're charged with manning a highly visible project and you do all the necessary and proper things to set it up and plan for success, and at the onset everyone is engaged and and willing and acting with alacrity, but as the project rolls on project participants are pulled off into different directions. And quite often, many of the project participants have a day job uh, in addition to the project work that they're doing for you. And as they get pulled into their day-to-day -day activities, they lose that alacrity and they lose the, uh, the enthusiasm. And before you know it, your, your project is at risk for successful delivery because you don't have the team engagement that you had at, at its inception. And there are things that I talk about, especially in Chapter 2, where I talk about accountability and how project managers can learn to act as the glue to keep everyone engaged and alive. We live in an email world, which in some ways is a positive and some ways can be a negative, especially in project management. There is always that temptation, I have sent an email out so everybody must get it and must be on track. Absolutely right. And that's one of the things I do talk about. Um, you know, Bernard Brut said that, uh, you know, the, the thing about communication is, is that the perception that it has occurred. Right. Um, but, you know, email is not communication. Um, and just because you send an email to someone doesn't mean that you've communicated to them. And because so many people are going through hundreds of emails per day, there's a tendency to, uh, you know, make the assumption that because I've sent an email, I've done my job in communicating. When in fact, that's the, the least effective form of communication. And when people, the, the right way to communicate is certainly use email as a tool, but you have to follow up with personal interaction and most importantly, acknowledgement from the recipient that not only did they get your message, but they understood your message. There's also the advantage of 
electronic communication where they can have a video conference with someone that may be um, distant from their project location or where they are managing a project and still communicate those important ideals and get that communication feedback they need. Isn't that correct? That is absolutely correct. And it's actually a benefit for a project manager these days to have the ability to um, meet with, with someone via video because when you open up communication to um, to uh, body language and facial expressions, you get much more information and data points with which you can mm. value the validity of information that you're receiving. For example, I may send an email to a project participant and say, how are things going? Are you going to complete your tasks on time? And I get a response, yep, will do. And that, that may not be a genuine response, but if I have the opportunity to, to visually look at the project participant and ask this question in, in person, I could read the body language, I could look at the facial expressions, and I can understand, well, maybe you're not quite sure. Is this something you need help with? And that may open up a lot more information that I could work with. You have distilled years and years of leadership and project development into a hundred, well, 214 pages. What was the length of time it took to actually put your, your ideas into print, Michael? Uh, it took about two years um, between uh, sketching out the, the various data points and incorporating the, the, the stories that I did to drive home the message. And what's important is that a lot of the, the principles and, and, and maxims that I suggest are, are applicable in the real world, and that's really where I wanted to offer uh, help to, to readers. Um, they, can, they can pick up these pieces of advice and instantly implement them to raise their effectiveness. Uh, would you say your book of leadership would apply to people who are not necessarily project managers? Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, um, a project manager is a leader, but there are fundamental leadership concepts that are apropos to not only project managers, but all walks of management uh, in, in corporate America. And these are, these are aspects that anyone can apply to be more effective as a leader, whether it's project management, software development, or even running a party or planning an event. Um, there are just fundamental and universal truths that you can gain. A lot of books about management and uh, business skills. This one, why is it different? What makes it unique in your perspective? I believe my, my book is unique, and I intentionally took this charge when, when, I'd be, when I decided to write a book about management, given the fact that there are so many out on the market today and, and available to readers. But what I, what the, the tact that I took was uh, leaving out abstract theories and things that may not apply or hit home to, to readers that are operating in a day-to-day -day world. Um, I read tons of project management books, and they all do a wonderful job of explaining the theories and, and practices that, that are successful and, quite frankly, industry standards. Um, but, but I found a gap in the available information about how to deal with a real-world situation, such as when you're tasked to do something and then halfway through your project is given a different set of priorities and you're told just get both of them done. Um, it happens quite a lot and uh, I, I would bet that a lot of your listeners will find themselves in that situation. So what is it, what can you do, what can you practically do the very next day or the very next week to navigate such a situation and still remain successful? And my book 
is designed to help people make those decisions. And I support the the the, uh, the strategies by real-world stories that have uh, occurred, and I've selected those stories based on some of the most common um, problems that I've seen in different areas and common situations that I've seen to help navigate those different uh, challenges. You've also underscored your book and your writing this way as a guide to leadership, accountability, and responsibility, perseverance, and professional pride. Those are the keystone foundations of project managers. Correct. Correct. But I, but I think they extend well beyond project managers. And really, what, what one of the other themes is, how do you instill that in your project participants? So I may be a project manager, but I may have 15 to 20 or 50 project participants who I am relying on their professional pride, their perseverance, and their accountability and leadership. So how is it that me as the manager or the leader of a particular initiative, how do I instill that in my project team? And that's a very important concept that I that I review. And not only instill that, but also motivate them, keep them positive on track and on task with the, the project. Uh, there is that personal touch that has to be included in that, isn't there? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, if you if you're not a people person and can deal with people in a in a crisis situation or don't enjoy it, then you you shouldn't count yourself as a project manager or or a leader. In fact, because first and foremost, I believe that people have motivations already, and it's up to the project manager or the leader to uncover what those motivations are and maximize their potential. Only do that when you can relate to people on a personal level. Absolutely agree with that. Beautifully said. Again, the book is titled A Pocket Guide for Project Managers. I love the size of the book. The concept of the book is one that will work for leadership in any capacity. Maximize people, process, and tools. Our guest, author, Michael J. Bedigo. Sir, where can my listeners get a copy of The Pocket Guide? It is available on Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble um, websites. It is also, I have a Twitter page and a blog, uh, WordPress, uh, Bedigal, and uh, you can find me on Facebook. And your last name is spelled B-E-T-T-I-G-O-L-E, for those who don't have a spell checker that will find you. So thank you again for sharing that. There must be additional experience you may want to share. Is there a follow-up book to this in the works? Yes, actually. I am uh, I am planning a book more around the uh, the management Um uh, project management is a is a passion of mine, but also uh, it's leadership. So I I intend to expand uh, beyond just project management and go into general leadership. Michael Bedigal, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. This is a uh, must-have for anybody in leadership, and especially if you're managing projects. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. 
For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book has an intriguing title, yet shares a personal journey for a family, one that was difficult, I'm sure, for the author to share. The title is No Longer on Pedestals, and the subtitle, A Powerful Story That Is Both Heartbreaking and Heartwarming. The underlying story is about the conflicts and the scandals that have plagued the Catholic Church told from the perspective of the family who experienced it firsthand, a very unique perspective, needing to be told. And our author, Carol A. Coonert, is joining me from Missouri. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This is a difficult story that you have shared, and yet one that is uh, hitting the news occasionally. Carol, tell me what in these 400 pages that you have penned was so important. Why did you want to share this particular story, and what is it about? I mean, it's about my, my brother, who I learned was a uh, pedophile priest. He had been molesting children, and I hadn't been aware of it. It was a complete surprise to me, but I trusted the church all along that they were handling it. And, but after decades of hanging on to my faith that the church would do the right thing, I was really shocked into reality when my brother's death was celebrated with Archbishop Burke presiding at the funeral as if Father Christian was a revered priest instead of the demoted priest, child rapist life he lived. It was at that point that I felt the need to reach out to my brother's victims to apologize for all the pain that he had brought into their lives. The Church sets the example to shame and blame the victims. So the victims' true stories are never communicated to the other faithful believers of the Church. Now, maybe if these members heard my story, they would feel compelled to not only reach out to the victims, but also demand an overall change for the good in the Catholic Church. Uh, this is a difficult story because it isn't someone that is far removed from you. It was your, your family member. When you decided to share this story, uh, who did you want to reach? What was the, the desire to appeal to, and, and who did you think would, would benefit from your story? Well... I believe that, that the story would definitely appeal to all people who are victims of sexual abuse and their families, and especially if it was perpetrated by someone in the religious life. Now, I would think that inquiring minds would be interested to learn about a pedophile priest and how his criminal behavior was dealt with by his own family and friends, as well as the church leadership. Some who cannot believe that a priest would do such a thing might read the book to find fault with it. Since this is a new angle, because it's experiences from inside the family of the pedophile, there might be some curious minds. 400 pages, there had to have been a, some research that was involved. I mean, you were, although family member, observing from the outside to some degree. How much research did you have to do, and how long did it take to complete your research and write the book? Well... I had been living this. It's not a matter of researching as much. I had all, all kinds of 
documentation of my own that for some reason I just had saved over the years. And just to refer back to, so when I was the thought came to me about writing a book, I thought, well, I can do this because I have all this on hand that I can refer back to for when, what things happened and when. Well, that's, we that's, okay. <laughs> that's okay. This is, a, this is a tough subject. You, when you say you have uh, documentation from way back, did that uh, go prior to your brother Norman entering the priesthood, or was it only from that point forward that you had uh, information to share? I didn't learn about this until I, well, I was married and had children, and um, my, my brother had sent me a or had called me one evening and said he was going to go on a sabbatical for six months and I wouldn't be able to reach him during that time. He just he never said anything of what it was about. But after he got there, he sent me a letter and said that he was there working on some kind of uh, addiction or something that he had, and uh, he hoped that I wouldn't ask too many questions or anything. So that was the first... I had no idea what he was working on what the problem was, none. And it definitely never entered my mind that he could have been a child molester. That was never in the picture. I thought possibly alcoholism or drugs or something like that. A very complicated, very complicated uh, story and complicated uh, setting to begin, to begin to confront your brother and ask him what's going on. Your sister and you also began to talk with Norman after he shared what was happening in his life. How did that How did that conversation go? Very strange. Um, how I found out about him in the first place was through one of my children, my daughter. He had been um, taking her at a time we thought. My husband and I thought he was counseling her through some problems that she was having. Well, it turns out he was you know, doing all kinds of things with her that had we known, it would have been stopped immediately. Mm. And she finally, after years, told me what was going on and that he had been molesting these young boys. So that at that point, I talked to my sister about it. We asked our other children if they were all right, and then I contacted Norman and told him we knew his secret, and we wanted to, my sister and I wanted to talk with him, and we did for, for an afternoon. We sat discussing everything, and um, I learned a whole lot of stuff at that point. He admitted a lot of things to me over the years, so it's not just I have documentations through letters and whatnot, but uh, as well as from the archdiocese and different bishops and priests and whatnot that have, I would write them about my concerns and they sometimes would respond, sometimes they wouldn't. But that day with my sister was, um, and when we sat talking with him, was really an eye opener. And um, and at the end of it all, after he admits everything to us on his way out the door, he says, "Now." He, he told us that definitely you don't say a word about this to anyone because mm. you could cause scandal to the church if you, if this came out in the public. So he took no, no responsibility to the fact that he did these things. That's what was scandalous. Very scary. And in addition to that, you have uh, talked about criminal investigations. Did that take place also in this incident or these incidences? The criminal investigations, yes. Um, they were... One victim did take him to court, and um, there were many victims. That A different victim was why he was removed from ministry, finally, but then this other one came along, and he finally actually was going to take him to court. 
You, you have shared a lot of uh, information about the uh, investigations and also the fact that he would be taken to court. You also have shared the, the stance of those in leadership in the church, those who would be called his, uh, I guess, his bosses, his superiors, the archbishops and others. What did you discover uh, from their perspective or their reaction to what was going on? Their answer to me was always, uh, pretty much just to say, this isn't yours to worry about. We're taking care of things. They wanted me to just back off and forget about it that, and trust that they were handling everything and doing the right thing, which is what I did. I'm a Catholic, a cradle Catholic, I was, and this was instilled in me from infancy on as I grew, you know, that to um, trust the church, trust all, anyone in the religious life. They were right next to God in my eyes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they just, you know, but when they finally ended up giving my brother this funeral as a priest in good standing, and Archbishop Burke himself had the um, funeral, that was, to me, just was terribly wrong. And that's when I decided I needed to speak out. You mentioned uh, destroyed clergy records. Was that regarding your brother or just in general that you're finding that, it? That was in general. In general, that's that, happening. That was in, yes, that was in general that um, every record was to be destroyed. That, that was a big news story that they were doing that to um, that anybody that had any records at their parishes, they were to destroy those or else send them back to, the, to that place there in New Mexico and they would see that they were destroyed. Because that place eventually got shut down. I can't think right now when the date was, but they closed. Your brother died. Uh, how, how old was he when he passed away? He was 69. 69. Yeah. So not not an old man. I wouldn't, at least I'm getting close. I mean, I don't uh, don't like to give away my age, but that doesn't sound that old. Uh, did he die of, of unusual health uh, diseases, or was it just natural death? He No, he did have his... Um, his kidneys and liver shut down. Oh, boy. But he was not sick for a long time with it. He was that whole, when this first came out about him in March of, of 04, he did, I found through different documentations that he had been traveling and, and doing things throughout that whole year. He was going around. And it wasn't until, I don't towards the very end, he died in October, the end of October, and about a month before that or so is when he, they said he kind of thought he had he had eaten something that didn't agree with him, and then he went in the hospital, and they ran tests and everything, and, and the prognosis was very poor. He wasn't going to live more than a couple more weeks. Mm. That's how quick that happened. Incredible. One, he was cared for by the church the entire time. You mentioned one of the victims' names, Tim. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's his real name or not, but yes. it, how, how old was he? And uh, share a little of his life and how it's turned out. Well, he was 11 at the time that my brother abused him, actually raped him. He was an 11-year-old child, and um, he suffered for a long time with that and kept the secret, and he did get married, and he felt kind of that he had a, two children, and he felt like when the, the one boy got to the age that he was when he was abused, that may have triggered him to report what happened, and then he went to the authorities and reported it, and um he had a difficult time at the very beginning. It's very frightening for these sexual abuse victims to come forward and tell what has happened to them because 
they're usually not believed. People scorn them, and and they're made to feel even worse. That he did come forward, and um, at that point, he started to um, get a little bit better along the way. It took him a long time. And when my my uh, daughter and a niece and I reached out at some point, you know, to uh, to the victims and, and to him, and we wanted to let him know that Norman was dying if he wanted to contact him or something. At that point on, he started to um, feel a little bit more hope. That, and uh, but he's still he's doing okay now. He's doing better, but um, but had a very difficult time. Is what it sounds very like. Very difficult. Sure. Yeah, these, and this is typical of all these abuse victims. My brother, for instance, told all his victims, all these young boys, and he said it to my daughter as well, that you can tell whoever you want about this. They're not going to believe you. You're just a kid. They'll believe me, the priest. Wow. And that's how he intimidated them. And so it took my own daughter years to be able to tell me, because I'm sure she feared I wouldn't believe her. You know, this is my brother she's talking about, and he's a priest. Hmm. So I really, really look up to these these survivors of these uh clergy abuse, that they find the courage to come forward and report it. Definitely. And a big part of this book is is that I want all the Catholics out there, all the membership, there's a lot of them that refuse to believe this is happening, and they just deny it. And I think that's because it's too difficult to deal with. They don't want this. The church is very important to them. And they don't want something this horrible happening that they'd have to accept and, and do something about it. So they just deny it. So I'm hoping that if people will read this story and and see what what I observed over the years, what happened with our family alone, this is one priest in particular, that they can um, perhaps get some of the truth that the church does its best to keep them from learning. Thank you for sharing your story. This is an important story for all people of faith, not just Catholics, but it is happening in the Catholic Church. Uh, at least that's hitting the news quite a bit. So if you are a person of faith or want to find out a little bit more about what has happened and transpired within the Catholic denomination, you can certainly access this book, 402 pages. You've done a wonderful job, Carol, of sharing your personal story, and I congratulate you on your your personal courage for Thanks. sharing your story. Carol, this is an important read. How long did it take to complete? Well, this endeavor has taken me nine years. Nine years. Start to publication. As life seemed to regularly get in the way of my writing, I always put family things first, devoting only spare time to working on the book. And there were times that I would wonder if it was worth doing it. But then I'd see another priest abuse case in the news, and then I knew that my book mattered very much. And, and survivors' reports were finally being believed, and others were coming forward to report their own clergy abuse. Our silence, when people remain silent, that tells the church officials that we agree with how they are handling the clergy sexual abuse scandal. That same silence tells the victims that we just don't care about them, and that's, that's very sad. The title of the book, again, is No Longer on Pedestals. And, of course, it's the story of the uh, sexual scandals inside the Catholic Church, and in particular inside your family, how it impacted you and your brother, who was a priest at the time. Thank you for sharing with me and sharing with my audience uh, your story. How do we get copies of your book, Carol? 
Well, our book is available at iUniverse.com, Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com. It's online worldwide, and it's available at all bookstores. They and, can it, and the name of my brother, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned it, was Father Reverend Norman Henry Christian from St. Louis, Missouri, Archdiocese. Well, thank you for sharing that and having the courage to share his name. Uh, Carol's last name is spelled K-U-H-N-E-R-T, Kunert. Carol, thank you for joining me today, and best of luck with this book and for sharing your story. Our hat's off to you, and thank you again for your service. Thank you very much. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Venus, Don't Go There, What Science and Religion Reveal About Life After Death. And our author, Michael T. Santini, joins me from California. And uh, Dr. Santini, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Jay. You have, you have a fascinating background just from my own personal perspective. It takes an engineering mind to do a book and complete a book with the topic material that you have covered. You have an engineering background. Uh, you have a uh, personality, apparently, and from an education standpoint, that's rather structured to some degree. You have written a book uh, that delves into a very uh, wide-ranged topic, science and religion, and what it reveals about life after death. How did you come to the inspiration to write this book, Dr. Santini? Well, it's just um, came to me after getting my doctorate degree I, uh, in theology. I had worked as an aerospace engineer my entire career and uh, focused mainly on building spacecraft uh, for um, various government programs. So I was very familiar with outer space uh, and very familiar since I grew up enjoying astronomy and stuff, I actually pursued the aerospace careers uh, because I had a passion for it. So I had a very strong background in understanding cosmology and astronomy, and then I uh, later in life decided to go to uh, seminary after you know becoming a Christian. I uh, was um, had a rebirth of my life around 40 years old. I was didn't attend church very often, but um, essentially got saved and then started reading the Bible and went to seminary toward the latter part of my aerospace career at, at Lockheed Martin and Boeing. 
And then when I retired, went on to get my doctorate, and uh, when I completed, I felt this inspiration to take a close look at the planet Venus as um, as a place of possible perdition, you know, a place where people would go who, you know, didn't uh, get saved, who were, you know, who were um, uh, sent, apart, uh, sent away from God after the, white, after the final judgment. So I began to examine that aspect of eschatology, and it was remarkable how, you know, between my science background and my theology background, how these scriptures aligned so well with the planetary environment of Venus. And so I decided I needed to put a book together uh, to tell that story. And I actually, in writing the book, put together uh, science and religion from the beginning of time all the way till now. In other words, there's, you know, science and religion are very closely related in my, in my writing. There is not a lot of um, uh, disparity. And I think that's really the intent the ultimate intent is for science and religion to work together. It's just that the people, the men of science and religion, don't work together. But I believe that ultimately it's God's intent for science and religion to be, at least at the top, in agreement on what ultimate truth is. I think that's a that's a, a great and needed part of faith and uh, the faith, uh, faith uh, structure. I talked with an author last week that was concerned because he grew up in a church environment that didn't have a lot of the, I would say, the uh, logical approach to faith. It was more emotion-based. And uh, what you have done is taken a very difficult subject, science, and have married it with faith. And uh, how did you uh, how did you discover, or did you, did you imply that Venus was a part of Scripture, or that there was uh, something related to Venus that possibly could be included in an interpretation of Scripture? um, One of the lead lead things I have that uncovered this was um, um, that Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, You know, and we say the prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. It it became clear to me that earth, the planet earth, was going to be the ultimate uh, place of, you know, that, that in the end time, that that, te- that heaven was going to come to earth, you know, that, that the kingdom of God was going to ultimately be on the planet earth, that God was going to come back to earth and restore the planet to the time of the Garden of Eden, and that we would all enjoy uh, in eternity our time on earth, so that earth is going to be, you know, that heaven and earth are not ethereal places, but the fact that heaven and earth are physical places in the universe. So what clued me in was the fact that you know, a lot of theology was pointing to the universe just evaporating and God having this kingdom, and that really wasn't true. That the scriptures are really telling me, and I have it in my book, that 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 Earth was going to be the ultimate place where God was going to come down to, where uh, people were going to actually have an eternal destiny was on our very planet of Earth. And now that's not happening yet. That's happening after after you know Jesus comes back after the end of time and the the end of um, uh, this age, this church age, um, we're going to have heaven on earth. And so the Bible clearly shows us, or at least in my view, shows us that heaven is going to be on earth, which then tips you off as to, well, where if heaven is on earth, and where is the people who don't make it, the people who, you know, are not saved, you know, um, where are they going to go? You know, the scripture, the scripture does, say, does say that in Revelation 20:15 that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. 
And the question becomes, well, where is this lake of fire? If mm-hmm. we're on Earth, where does this place actually exist? And so when I started examining the planet Venus, I started realizing that all the scriptures aligned, you know, the planetary conditions of that planet started aligning with the condition, with some of the descriptions of, of hell and the lake of fire. Interesting. So that's what clued me in, is it's actually within the solar system, I guess, is the answer there. Yes, within the solar system and, and something that we can relate to, at least uh, as humans. Uh, that's that's certainly an unusual and novel approach. You also have talked about Soviet spacecraft in the 70s and 80s. What did they discover about Venus when they deployed vehicles to land on, on that uh, planet? Yeah, um, that's an interesting point, Jay. You know, um, the Americans never really led the charge to Venus. It really was the Soviet Union that took the took the lead in, in, in sending a lot of spacecraft to Venus. They have spacecraft that have landed on the planet that have taken pictures of the surface. Um, they're the ones who uh, were able to reveal the high sulfur content on the planet. Um, so the Soviets have done a lot of work. I mean, the United States did, did have... Um, Later on, the Magellan spacecraft was able to take a lot of imaging, and so the the actual topography was done by the United States for the most part. But uh, the Soviets contributed heavily to uncovering some of the environmental conditions of Venus. And so I mention them in my book as being very big contributors. Fascinating. This is not a um, standard, understood, or accepted idea. Is this something that is unique to your studies, or have you come across other writers who have uh, maybe hypothesized this same conclusion? Um, I've run across lots of a few science and religious guys who try to blend science and religion from a cosmological perspective. You know, that the beginning of time was spoken about uh, by people like Stephen Hawkins and stuff relates to, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I have run across people who tie science and religion together in a cosmological sense. Yes. Um, I'm really the first person to actually say that, you know, from an end-time perspective, that Venus will be, you know, hell in the lake of fire. That, that was really my little contribution to the science aspect of this thing. Um, and so I'm bringing it to the forefront now. Have you gotten feedback from others in the ministry or in church faith-related institutions? Definitely. Um, you know, I, I sort of anticipated, I'm a, I'm a pastor, uh, an Assembly of God pastor, and I cast my book out and talked to my peers, other pastors, uh, the heads, my, my presbyter and other heads of my church, and and they have a relatively cool reception to it, I'll uh-huh. say, because, you know, their their theology, you know, is one that doesn't necessarily think that the earth is going to abide forever. They have different ideas. They're set in their theology. Now, none of them have ever said this is, you know, no, you know, they're, they're, they, they're not threatened to take my license away or anything. <laughs> I mean, well, they said, good. hey, it's a good idea. I mean, we've never <laughs> thought of this before, is what they're saying to me. Well, sure. But they're accepting it. They, they said, you know, this is a great idea. We've never thought of this before. It, it's interesting, is what they're telling me, but, but but they're not really receiving it with open arms because they've lived with their own theologies most of their lives. Yes. It's not necessarily a uh, a, a theory or an idea that would contradict Scripture or be a heret. heret. Uh, heretical uh, from uh, maybe a, a mainstream standpoint. It's just different. Absolutely, yes. 
No, I would say that my greatest reception has been amongst younger people, people who in their late teens and early 20s who are still searching around trying to figure out what it's all about, you know, Christianity, you know, is it real? What's the, is the Bible really telling me the truth? How, why is science and religion so much at odds with each other? I found a great audience, Jay, amongst the younger crowd. Fascinating. More open-minded. And I think also, just from yeah. my perspective, the younger audience is looking for some answers, not just theory. And uh, your book, although it may be theoretical in some aspects, has many facts included in it. How long did it take you to research this and get it into print? Uh, three full years. Three full years. I mean, we're talking six, seven days a week I worked on this book. I, it was my only project. Um, and I, I, had, I was blessed with the opportunity not to have any else going on in my life. I had gotten my degree. I had a house to live in. I had, you know, my bills were paid uh, and I didn't really require any to have a job. I was retired from aerospace. And so I was able to dedicate full time writing this book for over the course of three years. So I researched very heavily for the first six or eight months. I began writing, uh, editing, writing, editing, and uh, probably uh, just this last uh, November, I brought it to iUniverse for publication. They went through uh, with some editing for me, they did a great job on, on doing a line edit and was able to get this thing out, and, and it took a, like a three-year cycle, Jay. Incredible. Do you think this is a book that would appeal to more than just church-going folks? Is this something that maybe has a little broader appeal, or is it a little narrower in its concept and uh, purpose? Interesting, interesting question. I had a review done by Blue Ink. I had three reviews done by Blue Ink, and at the end of the Blue Ink review... Uh, I'm going to give you the very sentence that, the, that this lady says. She says, nonetheless, due to Santini's meticulous ar arguments, all sorts of readers will find his book intriguing. Believers, non-believers, scholars, and non-scholars. So she found my scientific and uh, biblical evidence to be strongly convincing, and that the idea of the Lake of Fire coming to be located on Venus is fascinating, that, and that she thought everybody, uh, you know, believers and non-believers, scholars and non-scholars alike, would like the book. Wonderful. Well, that wasn't my opinion. It was the opinion of an independent reviewer. Wonderful commendation in its own right. Are you planning to do a follow-up to this particular subject matter and uh, produce another book? Uh, I am. I am. I would like to write a book on uh, where I believe heaven is right now. Um, I haven't finished formulating the ideas on that yet, but I'm a little bit I'm kind of holding back a little bit, Jay, just to see how successful this first book is, whether I can build an audience or not. And uh, because I think I've got a very good uh, uh, topic for my second book, because I spoke essentially about hell in the first book, and I want to speak about heaven in the second book. And like I said, I think it'll be unique. I think it'll be fascinating. I've got some, what I think is um, some really uh, good ideas about uh, heaven on earth, what it's going to be like when people come back to earth, where, where that heaven is right now in the solar system or in the in the celestial sphere. It's going to be a great book, but I'm kind of going slow on it now because I want to see how people receive this first book. Very well done. The title again is Venus. Don't go there. What Science and Religion Reveal About Life After Death. Provocative title and great subject material. Our author, Michael T. Santini, Dr. Santini. Where do my listeners get a copy of your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the iUniverse uh, bookstore. 
possibility you are either developing or or have developed a website yet? I do. On the back of my on the back of my book, I I, I um, refer people to my. It's called PlanetEarthMinistries.com. Um, it's my website that I set up. Uh, it's a ministry I set up for people who read the book uh, and are interested in more information and are interested in science and religion working together. And it's sort of a bridge, Jay. I, I, the website is, is really uh, my personal ministry that people who want to come to faith or are interested possibly. I don't. It's not a church. It's not a place. I don't have any church. I don't have a denomination that I... I currently lead. I don't have any parishioners, but this this uh, ministry, this PlanetEarthMinistries.com, my website, the homepage serves as a place where people can go who are interested in more information about my book and possibly pursuing a spiritual or a Christian life. Phenomenal. Thank you, Dr. Santini, for joining me today and sharing the story of this very interesting concept and idea. Venus, don't go there. What Science and Religion Reveal About Life After Death. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. You're welcome, Jay. Have a great day. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.